When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. As always, it may be Friday, but we are on the job for you. A key job Friday, of course, in America. Today's numbers coming at a particularly tense time for U.S. workers with cutbacks announced just this week from the tech sector. That said, seemingly no slowdown yet in the jobs market overall. The U.S. economy adding a net 261,000 jobs last month. That was way above expectations of 200,000 jobs added net. Big upward revisions in September. Today's numbers not, I think, what the Fed really wants to see as it attempts to slow down the economy and, of course, tame inflation. In fact, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's hawkish message this week was that monetary tightening is far from complete, only intensifying fears, I think, that the U.S. will fall into recession next year. And, of course, one reason why firms operating in interest rate sensitive sectors, we're talking sectors like technology, like housing, are making plans to reduce or at least not increase their headcount for now. Twitter, of course, the major breaking corporate news story with layoffs beginning this morning. Some 3,000 workers, it's been reported, close to half the staff may be let go. Other tech firms announcing cutbacks, however, too. Ride-hailing app Lyft and payment processing firm Stripe Stripe cutting around 13% of their employees. Both companies citing recession fears. Amazon, in the meantime, extending its hiring freeze as well, capping a horrible week, really, for the company that began with disappointing earnings and a warning of holiday shopping slowdown. Now, Amazon stock falling another 3% in the session Thursday. Its shares, in fact, have tumbled more than 46% year-to-date. You can see it there. And talk about fallen fangs. Meta stock in nothing short of a collapse down a further 2% Thursday and off almost 74% year-to-date, making it the worst-performing firm for the S&P 500 this year. It also slowing the pace of hiring. As you would imagine, US futures pretty volatile pre-market, a higher open seen for stocks at this moment. A fascinating and complex picture for stock investors to navigate, with headline jobs growth strong, even as those recession warnings continue. Rahel Solomon joins us now with all the details on this jobs report. I think it's a solid jobs report. The only blip there, I think, particularly politically for Joe Biden heading into the midterms next week, is a rise in the unemployment rate. Just talk us through what we saw. So the unemployment rate did rise, in fact, Julia, from three and a half percent, which, as you know, was a 50 year low to now three point seven percent. The report saying that about three hundred thousand more unemployed people rather uh, were added in the month of October. Two hundred and sixty one thousand jobs added. That was hotter than expectations. It was, however, much cooler than the revised number for September, which was 315,000. So perhaps that is what the futures are responding to, that it does appear to be a bit of a slowdown there. When, Julia, we look at where we saw the job gains in the U.S. in the last month or so, uh, well, it was healthcare that added about 53,000 jobs, professional tech services, uh, manufacturing added 32,000 jobs, and leisure and hospitality, which is still sort of clawing its way back from its pandemic losses, also adding about 35,000 jobs. So how does 
the Fed interpret this? So we saw the unemployment rate rise quite a bit, about 3.7%, from 35 to 3.7%. We saw job gains slow a bit. The labor force participation rate, which the Fed watches very closely, essentially, how many people are participating in the labor force? That did not change. And we know Powell has talked quite a bit about uh, needing people to come off of the sidelines and join us working folk to come off the sidelines and actually participate. And we did not see that move uh, in the month of October. So is this a Goldilocks report? You know, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of something for everyone here. Uh, Job growth slowing, but perhaps not as much as the Fed or even the White House would really like to see. The irony in, in what you just said there is fascinating to me. And it really crystallizes the challenge that both the Federal Reserve face, the government face and, and ordinary people face. The idea that we think that investors are celebrating a slowdown in, in job gains in the US economy simply because the Federal Reserve, the government want to get a handle on rising prices. And it, and it cuts to the core of the challenges at this moment that mm. we are seeing decades low in in the unemployment rate, even with the slight rise this time around. And yet consumer confidence is so low. And the majority of Americans, according to surveys that CNN done, are saying we're already in recession. That's the challenge. And that's the challenge of inflation. Well, and I think that's a fantastic point. And that is exactly it, right? That is sort of the uh, effect that inflation is having on perception, because you do have this very robust labor market But you also have prices which are also rising at its fastest clip in about four decades, right? And so it sort of just makes you feel pretty crummy about things. But you're right, any other time, this would be a great number, right? To see the U.S. economy adding 261,000 jobs, that would be great. But we know the concern is that we have overheated and that we need to slow down. And so in a way, for for the Seinfeld viewers out there, you know, if you've watched Seinfeld in that episode of Bizarro World, where what is up is down and what is left is right— that's sort of the, the environment that we feel like we're in. Good news is bad news, and sometimes bad news is good news. It is all very confusing. But, Julia, I know you and I have talked about this before when Jason Furman said on Twitter, if you're not a little confused about the economy, you're not paying attention. Yeah, and the rest of us are just very confused, quite frankly. But I think we can simplify it and say um, less job gains or slower job gains means perhaps less rate hikes in the future, and that's why it would yeah, be positive. That's a good yeah. way to put it. Mm-hmm. Rahul Solomon, thank you for that. Okay, staying with jobs and mass layoffs are expected at any moment at Twitter. Elon Musk expected to fire thousands of employees in the coming hours. Up to half of the staff could be gone by the end of the day. Paula Monica joins me. I feel like, uh, Paul, we've been talking about this now for days and days and days. And the speculation has been wild over the proportion of people that, that might lose their jobs, which um, terrible for these people, of course, right before Christmas. But what are we expecting in, in terms of numbers and, and actually how it's going to be carried out? Yeah, as you point out, the the numbers are staggering, Julia. There's reports that it could be half of the workers. And this really is just shaping up to be a, a kind of ghoulish mix combination of the Hunger Games and a reality TV show and Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Because according to the reports, If you are a Twitter employee that's going to keep your job, you will get an email at your Twitter email. If you are going to be laid off, you're going to get a notice at your personal email with more instructions. And oh, by the way, Julia, they're shutting the offices temporarily and restricting badge access because they're worried possibly about what might happen from all of these possibly vengeful 
Twitter employees that you know are not going to be thrilled about not having a job anymore in the Elon Musk era. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's ever fired someone knows there's no easy way to do this, um, and there's so much press coverage. Uh, of every word that's uttered. And some of that, of course, is um, self-inflicted with the, the fact that the new chief twit is on Twitter so much and is talking to people about this. But it's difficult. At the same time, perhaps no surprise that some of the biggest advertisers in the world are going, Ugh. Yeah, you have reports that General Mills and Audi are uh, recommending or that they are going to temporarily pause advertising on Twitter. And I think it makes sense, Julia. There are all these reports about the increased you know, rise in sort of hateful content that has come back onto the platform. You look at that and you look at this circus that Twitter has become under Elon Musk. If you're an advertiser, you know, all of a sudden you start thinking, yeah, you know what? Google, Facebook, TikTok, they look a lot more stable than Twitter. Sorry, Elon. And that says something. Yes. I mean, I'm sure but he just wants his $8 for verification. So if he loses yeah. the ads, he, you know, he just honestly thinks people are going to pay up for those blue and white check marks. We'll yeah. see. I'm not going to be one of them as we discussed yesterday. <laughs> as we previously discussed. We'll see. <laughs> Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Great to chat to you this week. Okay, let's move on. Escalating tensions on the Korean peninsula. South Korea says it scrambled 80 fighter jets Friday morning after around 180 North Korean warplanes were detected in the skies near the border with South Korea. The UN Security Council will discuss the situation in the coming hours. Will Ripley joins us now from Seoul. Will, I know you'll bring us up to speed with the latest, but you and I were talking about this, the, the UN Security Council meeting, what good they do. I think that's an even more pertinent question in light of what we've seen over the past 24 hours. Absolutely right, because you you know you have the United States and Lyndon Thomas Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., saying that they're going to try to put pressure on China and Russia to do more to enhance the sanctions against Pyongyang, which is already one of the most heavily sanctioned economies on Earth, and they still continue to grow their nuclear program by leaps and bounds and do things that are pretty extraordinary for a country of any size, including testing uh, what they claim are hypersonic weapons, which are ballistic missiles that have the ability to change course mid-flight, making them almost impossible to shoot down the U.S. still hasn't deployed that technology. Russia and China have. Uh, but it just goes to show the, the, the regime of Kim Jong-un's determination at this point uh, to go down their checklist and, and test and enhance their already substantial and growing arsenal. An arsenal that, despite several years of diplomatic uh, efforts on the part of the former president of the U.S., Donald Trump, the former South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, uh, got us right back to this point where we're at the, on the verge, potentially, of a seventh underground nuclear test which would be the biggest provocation in half a decade and could potentially push this region back to the brink of a nuclear crisis. And on top of all of that, uh, Russia and China are staying remarkably silent, remarkably neutral, uh, if, or at least publicly they claim to be neutral. Uh, but really, uh, you know, analysts say they are in no mood, meaning Xi and Putin in no mood to work with the United States and its allies, to work with the West in general on punishing Pyongyang because they have this authoritarian alliance, this alliance that basically, with a wink-wink and a nod, nod, they're allowing each other to do what they want to do, whether it be uh, China's refusal to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine or China's refusal and Russia
Russia's refusal to strongly enforce these North Korean sanctions, which allow the country to continue uh, to, to, to grow this program and to you know keep their economy kind of limping along despite the, the United States and the West's best efforts, Julia. So uh, this latest uh, provocation, uh, you know, after the week we've had, frankly, uh, you know, warplanes near the border uh, and, you know, South Korea scrambling their own warplanes in response, that's a pretty tame way to end the week, considering that they tried to fly their most powerful ballistic missile over Japan just yesterday. And even though the missile failed in mid-flight, they learned just as much, if not more, from a failure than they do from a, a success, Julia. And, uh, of course, the day before that, to see more than two dozen North Korean missiles launched in a single day, this unprecedented blitz, uh, it, is, it is just really striking and concerning. Uh, we're watching very closely here what's going to be happening in the coming hours, given that North Korea is incensed by the extension of the vigilant storm exercises between the U.S. and South Korea, which they are claiming is the whole reason why they're doing all of these provocations in the first place. Although, let's be honest, it's an excuse. They, they, they say this every time the U.S. and South Korea have military drills, even though North Korean military drills are continuing as well. Mm. We'll wait and see what the UN Security Council has to say. But um, to, to, to the bigger point about yeah. whether it's a ballistic missile use or, or nuclear weapon use, surely it's in no one's interest, irrespective of your position on the political spectrum. Um, yes, I guess that's politics. Yeah. Or Ripley, great to have you as always. Thank you. And Ukraine's president says terrorism is being unleashed against his country's energy sector. Vladimir Zelensky says Russia's attacks have left four and a half million people across Ukraine in the dark. The capital, Kyiv, the mayor says nearly half a million households are now without power. The president also says inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency have established that Ukraine is not developing dirty bombs, contrary to what Russian President Vladimir Putin has said. And we're expecting to hear from the former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan from his hospital bed the day after he was shot and injured at a rally. Safiya Safi is in Islamabad with the latest for us. Safiya, good to have you with us once again. There have been accusations directed at the current Prime Minister by associates of the former Prime Minister Imran Khan, of course, that was injured yesterday. I want to ask you about that and whether we're expecting those accusations to be heard directly from the former Prime Minister today and whether there's been any evidence to support those accusations presented. Just talk us through it, please. Julia, well, this, I mean, the, the statement that was made by the associate of the Prime Minister, according to him, his Asad Omer, he said that uh, this statement was coming directly uh, from Imran Khan himself, in which he's not only blamed the Prime Minister, but he's also blamed the Interior Minister and uh, Major General Faisal, who is a senior intelligence officer. And this kind of uh, wraps into the fact that Imran Khan has been accusing the government uh, as well as the military establishment for conspiring along with the United States uh, of getting rid of him. He had been saying in the lead up to what happened yesterday when he was shot uh, in the leg, he is now out of danger. He had a surgery, he's chipped a bone uh, as well as had a pellet lodged in his thigh. Uh, we do know that he's due to speak any minute. Uh, he might actually just be speaking right now while I'm on air with you. Uh, but we've been waiting for quite a few hours for that statement to come, uh, just 24 hours after he was shot. Uh, we know that there are now protests. He'd called for his party, had called for protests across the country uh, for uh, general uh, early general elections. Uh, that is why Imran Khan was leading a long march towards the capital. Uh, he was at one of the rallies as part of that long March when he was attacked. 
uh, yesterday evening in the district of Gujranwala in the province of Punjab. And we're seeing these protests now spread uh, across the country from the south in the largest city of Karachi, uh, as well as right here in Islamabad. Uh, there's an interchange called Fazabad, which connects the capital city to the city of Rawalpindi. And what we're seeing over there is tear gas protesters, not as many as expected, but it's happening in the province of Balochistan. It's happening in the province of Punjab. It's happening in the north. And it's something that we had feared. We're fearing that it could get worse, but we're hoping, and Pakistanis themselves are hoping, that this situation does not get completely out of control and there's a situation of anarchy. So we'll just have to wait and see what Khan says, whether he's going to control uh, his followers or whether he will continue with those accusations and give some evidence because the government has responded. The interior minister has said this is a grievous statement and this incident of Khan's attack should not be politicized and it would be irresponsible to do so. So we're just waiting to see uh, what happens once Khan begins to speak. Julia? Yes. Thank you so much for that and we will bring the detail to our viewers the moment we get it for now. Sophia, thank you. Sophia Saifi there. Okay, straight ahead. Family fury. The human cost as officials take extreme measures to keep China's COVID at bay. And fantastic plastic. How one company is turning trash into treasure in the construction industry. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, a busy day on the show as always with the focus not only on US job gains but also on some high profile job losses. However, the US reporting less than an hour ago that a greater than expected 261,000 jobs were added net to the economy last month with broad based gains in healthcare, manufacturing and the leisure and hospitality sector but an uptick in unemployment bar, but for an uptick in unemployment, but a solid report overall. And a report that will only fuel inflationary concern at the Federal Reserve too. Even before today's report, Fed Chair Jay Powell called the labor market, quote, overheated. An interesting juxtaposition as we report on further job losses in interest rate sensitive sectors like tech. Neela Richardson joins us now. She's the chief economist at payroll processing firm ADP. Fantastic to have you on the show this morning. Welcome, welcome. Firstly, <laughs> what do you make of today's jobs numbers? Well, thanks for having me. These are really strong numbers. Mm. If you think about where we are on this economic cycle, we've largely recruited in the United States all the jobs that were lost in the pandemic. So what you're seeing now in this 261 thousand jobs for October is real job creation. These are not regaining lost jobs. This is actually producing new jobs. And for any economy, especially one that's supposed to be on the brink of a recession, this is a really strong and robust jobs report. You know, it's interesting. You collect your own um, jobs information over at ADP too. And you said something in a recent interview that, that caught my attention. And you said, even if hiring is slowing at some of the larger companies, it perhaps results in less crowding out of the smaller companies that have been struggling to hire and not been able to. Um, and perhaps they then will be able to hire. So there's a cushioning effect. I mean, that really caught my attention. So explain that for us and, and perhaps how long that lasts too. 
Absolutely. So ADP pays about one in six U.S. workers. And, mm -hmm. and many of our clients are small firms. And what we've seen is that small firms were the first to start hiring, but then they had to compete with larger firms, compete on wages, compete on benefits. And they were outbid many times because wages uh, workers could command higher salaries and larger firms were in the position to give those higher salaries. Well, now as you're seeing some of these large firms that hired aggressively uh, during the pandemic start to pause a bit in their hiring, small firms are catching up. And when we survey firms and we do that every quarter, we find that finding qualified workers is the number one issue for small firms. It's not the economy, it's not supply constraints, it's not even inflation, it's finding people and adding headcount. And so what you might be seeing is larger firms are slowing down, it gives small firms some breathing room and opportunity to add to their headcount. Yeah, I mean, and that just, exacerbates the challenges in many ways for the Federal Reserve as they continue to look at the inflation rate and say, look, we, we, we have to do something about this. So for those that went into the meeting at the Federal Reserve this week, hoping for some kind of sign that perhaps they're willing to uh, slow down in terms of the, the size and the scale of the rate hikes that they're doing. I mean, you look at the inflation number and you go, why would they do that? You look at the jobs number today and you go, there's really, at least so far, no evidence to suggest that that they're getting on top of the inflation rate and they can they can bring it down significantly would you agree you know what i think the 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 easy solutions of bringing the pandemic down through the labor market are not going to be there for the Fed. Yeah. If you look at wages, they're starting to stabilize, but they're stabilizing at higher levels. So we're seeing wage growth top out at higher than expected uh, wage gains. At ADP, we're seeing that for people who stayed on the job for more than a year, they're seeing a wage growth of 7.7%. That's really high compared to where we even were just a year ago. So the Fed has other channels. They could maybe bring some demand down through the housing market. Unfortunately, for many investors through the stock market, but the labor market remains really tight. And so that means that the Fed is going to probably have to raise rates higher for longer in order to get the kind of effect on inflation that they want. You know, it's fascinating because we saw through the pandemic supply chain issues, uh, central banks threw so much money at the situation as well to try and support individuals that were struggling in, in many different guises. Um, but we've seen that before in the past. I think what we've relied on over the last, I guess, decade to two decades is the disinflationary forces, a lot of them through technologies. And a smartphone's a great example that it's a, a camera, a video recorder, a, a voice recorder, um, as well as a phone and a little computer as well. I sort of wonder where those disinflationary forces have sort of petered out or gone from. Um, you could, perhaps could answer that better than me, but does it come down to an idea of productivity? It's, it's a sort of snooze yeah. if you go back to your economics textbooks. But when did we forget that actually boosting productivity and a bigger bang for the buck in terms of workers being able to work more efficiently, faster in the same amount of time, perhaps, and for the same amount of pay? Because that's how you grow without making it inflationary, surely. Is there a solution there somewhere, too? You make an excellent point, and productivity is the fly in the ointment in the labor market right, right now. Economies grow, all economies, when you have more workers who are 
who can be more productive, who can create more output. That not only increases workers' wages, it increases profits and standards of living. That's why productivity is so paramount to economic growth. But that's not what we're seeing. We're actually seeing productivity slide. And wages are going up, not because workers are more productive, but because firms have to compete for those workers. And so that means that it's less output, but more man hours. And that by in, in itself is inflationary. So to really grow our way out of this inflationary picture, which I think is going to be more persistent for a longer period of time than just this one episode, it means that we have to rethink how we invest in an economy to create more a more productive workforce. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and to your point, that's government job. That's not the central bank's job. It's not the Fed's. And that's not the Fed's job. The Fed is doing what it's supposed to do, keeping an eye in, on inflation now. But to solve the problem of inflation in the future, as inflation becomes more persistent, that it's not no longer transitory, exactly because of the points you mentioned, these de uh, inflationary forces are not having the same effect now than they used to. Um, then it's the role of governments to make sure that the workforce is properly invested in to make them more productive and then grow the economy over time. Yes. Thank you for making us smarter. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist <laughs> at ADP. Great to chat to you and have a great weekend. More First Move Thank after you. this. Welcome back to First Move and US stocks are up and running this final day of the trading week and it is a higher open on Wall Street as investors pour over a stronger than expected read on US jobs growth. Hang on a second. I think that's um, where we finished yesterday. So we'll get that in the moment we, uh, we see it well updated. And a report, of course, that will only make the Fed's inflation fighting mission harder. That said, we are coming off a week of losses for all the major averages, particularly for the tech sector, too. So perhaps a little bit of a bounce was in order this Friday. We shall bring you that uh, data the moment we get it. In the meantime, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing. The first visit by a G7 leader into China in roughly three years. And the first visit by a major political leader since Xi began his third term in office. Meeting Friday morning, both men emphasized the need to work together in a volatile international environment, to say the least. Selena Wang joins us now on this. Selena, great to have you with us. Um, it's funny, China holds many of the ace cards here. They have financial leverage with Russia. They have financial leverage with North Korea. Also a delicate balance for, for Germany, of course, given that China is their largest trading partner. So it's um, what levers each of them can pull here. What do we think? Well, it's an extremely critical meeting to your point, mm. and it's also a very delicate balance here that the German Chancellor is trying to strike. He's in a difficult position. He wants to maintain those economic ties with China. At the same time, he's facing this pressure, not just at home within his own government, but also from allies to take a tougher stance on China. Going into this meeting, he faced a lot of criticism that Germany is putting their economic interests over the need to pressure China on human rights and other critical issues that other 
allies in the West have been pushing Germany to do with China. Now, in this meeting, though, he made it very clear by being in China, sending the symbolic message that despite all of these international challenges, this relationship between Germany and the world's second largest economy, well, it is going to continue and it must continue. This is Germany's most important trading partner. And those trade flows have only been growing with the value of trade last year reaching more than $240 billion. The importance of that relationship really reflected by the fact that he went to China with about a dozen top executives, including leaders of companies like Volkswagen that make a very large portion of their profits, of their revenues from China. What's also important here is that there are people inside his coalition government that are increasingly nervous about these deepening ties that we're seeing economically. A really good example of that is a really fierce debate in Germany over a Chinese state shipping company, Costco, buying a stake in the Hamburg port terminal. But the reality is that Germany may not even be able to afford a decoupling, even if they wanted to. There is a looming deep recession on the horizon in Germany. They've also been hit hard by the war in Ukraine because they've been forced to ditch their long dependence on Russian energy. So they're not really in a position to play hardball when it comes to China. Another key point here, though, is that the biggest challenge potentially for German businesses and for, quite frankly, all foreign businesses is China's continued zero COVID policy, which has devastated the economy at home and it's made China a much less attractive place for all foreign businesses. So a lot of difficult challenges and a lot of difficult balancing that Olaf Scholz faced going into this meeting and coming out of it. Selena, um, oh boy, some challenges. It's interesting what you said, and we've obviously been talking about it now day after day. You're, of course, almost halfway through your own um, quarantine and the challenges of zero COVID. It's been fascinating to watch financial market investors this week in China. And admittedly, those stock markets have been heavily beaten up. But this rallying on the suggestion that perhaps there's going to be some easing of some of these lockdown measures in stock, I think we can call it, contrast to what you've been discovering is going on in terms of life under lockdown. I mean, look, Julia, investors are so desperate for any good news out of China, especially when it comes to easing zero COVID, that even a tiny rumor can spark a big share rally. But there was this big expectation that after the party Congress, after Xi Jinping consolidated his power, got reanointed for an unprecedented third term, that he would feel comfortable easing the zero COVID policy. Well, that clearly hasn't happened. In fact, he's doubling down on the strategy. And he made that clear on his party Congress speech when he said zero COVID is a success, putting Chinese lives above all else. So we see China still stuck in this endless cycle of quarantines, lockdowns and mass testing. But the problem now is that public confidence is waning, frustration is growing, that patience is wearing thin. A 14-year-old girl lies in bed, convulsing at a COVID quarantine facility in China. Someone comes over saying the kid has a fever of 104 degrees Fahrenheit and no one is coming. She died soon after. A man who says he's the girl's father posted this video online, filming his daughter's body. He's demanding justice. I beg the Communist Party to investigate, he says. CNN hasn't been able to independently verify the videos. They've been censored in China.
Along with these videos of a father desperately trying to revive his three-year-old son, he can't get his child to the hospital fast enough because of COVID restrictions in Lenzo City. The boy later died. Enraged residents took to the streets. Swarms of armed police held them back. In Lenzo City, some were forced to quarantine outside in the cold, in parking lots. This viral video, which CNN could not verify, shows others forced to stay in male bathrooms, sleeping under urinals. In year three of the pandemic, every positive case and close contact is still sent to government quarantine facilities like these. And this one, the video says it's a quarantine site for kids in Henan province. A little boy jumping on bricks to avoid the pool of dirty liquid. This is where they use the bathroom. Distraught parents crowd outside to protest. Protesters rushed to the streets in Lhasa, Tibet, demanding the end of a lockdown that's lasted for more than 80 days. And in Zunzo City, workers are fleeing Apple's biggest iPhone plant after a COVID outbreak. Masses of workers carrying their luggage walk long distances across highways, through villages, even farm fields. Those left behind at the factory claim living conditions are subpar. Videos appear to show workers literally fighting for boxes of supplies. China's leader Xi Jinping claims zero COVID puts lives above all else. But for many, it's precisely the policy itself that's ruining their lives. This woman sobs on the ground, crying that after she was caught with her mask pulled down, the government suspended her business for 30 days, losing a month's income. Metal spikes, which the man filming says were installed on a compound gate to prevent residents from leaving, or red plastic barriers. This one separating a father from his daughter. The little girl, worried, asks her dad how he's going to get home. But her father, like millions across China, likely has no idea when he can go home or when all of this will end. The other big question, Julia, is just how long is China going to keep up these strict border control measures for? As you reminded me, I'm currently midway through my own 10-day government quarantine, all inbound travelers. We are bussed off to isolation facilities. The doors close. We can only open them for our daily PCR tests to pick up the food that's left outside the door three times a day. Disinfectant gets sprayed in the hallway every few hours with a giant machine. So all of this is really extreme for the rest of the world that's learned to live with COVID. But this is still the reality inside China. So it is no surprise that this country has become increasingly isolated as the pandemic has dragged on. With the dramatic consequences, of course, for the rest of the world too. Selena, hang in there, please. Good job. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now on those numbers and uh, a look at the US stock markets as well. I think we've got them. Aha! There we go. Up and running this Friday. Higher as you can see there for the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 gains of around what 1% for the Dow Jones at this moment. A reaction perhaps to the better than expected jobs numbers we just received in the United States. Although, of course, today's numbers doing nothing to alleviate the inflation fears that are currently the focus of the Federal Reserve. Despite today's rallies, U.S. stock still on track for weekly losses. Okay, up next, as the world faces a pollution crisis and, of course, a cost of living crisis, one company has an idea to tackle both. That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Everything from biros to bottles, our planet's drowning in plastic. Despite our best intentions to separate and sort, only around 8% is recycled. Most ends up in landfill, incinerated or in our oceans. At the same time, construction is expensive. There can be supply chain issues and price volatility. And traditional construction methods with bricks or blocks rely on mortar and drying time. A potential way of addressing all of these problems, a U.S. company called Bifusion has monetized unrecyclable plastic by turning waste into construction blocks. Using only steam and compression, its zero-waste process repurposes unsorted plastic waste. Steel rods hold the structure together, and Bifusion wants to partner with local governments, municipalities, and corporations. And Heidi Kujawa is the CEO and joins us now. Heidi, phenomenal to have you on the show. I think for most people watching this, this is the big question when you sort and when you filter what will be recycled. And what Bifusion is doing is negating the need to worry about that and utilizing it all. Exactly. Julia, thanks for thanks for having me today. That's exactly right. I mean, I think what we've seen is, you know, plastic is is actually a really wonderful material. It's, it's enabled us to grow as a civilization and do some amazing things. The challenge is it's just been completely mismanaged. It's a very complicated material. Not all plastic is created equal. Only some of the types of plastic that are created can actually be recycled, which is, and it's designed to never degrade or go away, which is compounding the challenge. And so what so, we've decided is, go ahead. Please carry on. <laughs> no, what we've decided is let's just try to make it simple. I mean, it's very difficult to figure out as a consumer, like we're not chemical engineers, like what is recyclable and what's not. So if it's not a water bottle and it's not clear to you, we've just given you an alternative uh, ability to convert the non-recyclable plastic waste into something usable. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it makes perfect sense to me. So, so you take rubbish, whether it's clean or dirty, you compress it into the blocks that we were showing earlier called by blocks, I believe. Just explain the process of that. And I think we can see the machinery behind you as well, how those blocks are, are created, um, what they cost and ultimately what they can be used for too. Yes, thank you. It's uh, it, those are really good questions. The um, the process is intended to be very simple. I mean, again, the recycling uh, the recycling industry is a complicated one. Uh, being able to take something that is uh, a bottle of sorts and then reconstitute it back into a form that can be then again reconstituted into another bottle that takes a lot of time and energy. And so our process is designed to be very very simple. You literally don't have to clean, sort, measure pull labels off of, you don't have to, you, there's no intended recipe. We make snowflakes, the process is completely the same. And the science behind what we do is been able to take something that's not measured, that's not clean, that's not sorted, and convert it into something that is consistent in performance and structural capabilities. And so in this machine that you see behind me, this is not a background, this is a real, this is the real one. Um, we literally take the, take the material throw it in the machine. It is all happens within the machine and out comes a block. There's no additives, no fillers, no glues, mortars, adhesives. It's literally just plastic waste. How much more expensive in total? Can you, can you give us any sort of base comparison compared to traditional building materials? And to your point, if we just compare the obvious things, I guess, um, heat resistance, durability, um, tensile strength, um, how, do, how do they match up relative to traditional building materials. I know it's clearly far quicker to create them. Yes, far quicker. Um, so mm -hmm. from a, from a uh, comparative perspective, 
the the structural con- uh, integrity is really in line with a little bit of lumber and a little bit of hollow cement blocks that we're accustomed to seeing. So we fall within a building code category within the, within lumber that's pr- basically on par with lumber. Um, but from a structural perspective, we act very much like a like a hollow a cement block. So uh, right now we are using cement for everything. That's just what we've done and lumber for everything. And so this is really intended to maybe reduce the dependency of some of those materials and use those for what they're most suited for and best intended to be done with. And so uh, it's actually a very strong material. We we fall within a general utility, which spans from everything from landscaping, terracing, uh, all the way into commercial applications and single family homes and residence applications. I think the sweet spot and what we're really focused on is enabling communities to take control of their plastic waste so that we can help to build and develop and refurbish the infrastructure crisis that we're seeing around the world, not just in the U.S. So that's really where we're focused on is enabling communities to take control of their plastic to put back into their communities. Yeah, I mean, this, if you can sell this to waste management companies or municipalities that, that mm-hmm. actually are doing the process of collecting the refuge and then they can make them into these and sell these blocks on, because I know that we were saying that earlier, you actually provide the technology and the machinery for this too, which is, which is part of the business model. You know, it's interesting. Um, it's not a sexy subject, though. I mean, recycling is okay, but when you're talking about waste, um, I'm just sort of trying to imagine you talking to investors. How much of a challenge has it been to get investors excited about this, as sort of sparkly and as amazing as you are? Oh, thank you. Uh, it's been challenging. I mean, that's, yeah. one of the, that's one of the things that we've seen that's added to the complexity is, you know, I come from the tech background, actually. So that's, I, I, mean, I know how to speak to investors around technology. And while this is a very technical machine with a lot of intelligence and automation, uh, this is still waste management. So <laughs> the challenge that we're seeing is uh, one of the problems the waste management industry suffers from, I should say, is that it's not, it's been slow to innovate. There hasn't been a lot of capital funds going into that market, which is why we're in the situation that we're in. So the, the traditional investment community has been slow to to make investments in these industries, in this and in construction. And so I think that we're on the heels of helping to innovate both of those industries pretty quickly. Yeah, which is nonsensical to me because, as we said in the introduction, you're tackling two things at once and actually it could be incredibly beneficial. Um, are you going to COP27? Uh, I, I'm not sure yet. We're pretty busy right now, so uh, I'm if we can sure get you it are. in the schedule, I know it's important. Uh, it's it's an important it's an important uh, event, and I would love to be there. We'll we'll see how we can if we can make that happen. Yeah, I was going to say whether you actually felt like it was important, or it's the work by people like you on the ground and and the sort of practical rather than the big thematic discussions about this that that are ultimately crucial for for tackling our carbon footprint. Yeah. It's always the balance. We're, we're very passionate yeah. about this, but there's also kind of an element of what we're doing that I'm kind of sick of talking about it. I just want to get it done. You know? oh, I, could, I could never admit to that, but I like the action. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking for a living. Um, Heidi, great to chat to you. Thank you. We'll stay in touch. You can come Thank back you. and talk to us soon. Thank you. The Bifusion CEO there. Thank you. No shortage of talking on this show. And up next, the talk of the town. Elon Musk may be miles away from Lisbon, but he's still the hot topic at this year's Web Summit. We hear from the event CEO after this. Welcome back to First Move. And as we've been reporting this hour, Elon Musk is expected to begin laying off Twitter employees today, according to a memo sent to staff. 
It's been a major talking point in Lisbon at this year's Web Summit event, where some of the biggest names in tech are gathered. And Anna Stewart has more from Lisbon. Artificial intelligence, Web3, cryptocurrencies, climate tech, the metaverse, remote work, the evils and opportunity of social media. Some big talking points this year, and as ever at Web Summit, some really big names here as well. But it's not all happening right here. There is a lot going on away from the main stage. From big firms to small startups, it's a place where tech firms can pitch for publicity and investment. And it's a chance to try something different. Well, looking around here, it is hard to believe that this event actually came close to collapse last year. This year, it's bigger than ever before. Tickets actually sold out weeks ago. And that is despite this year, 2022, so far, being a year that some tech investors might like to forget. Tech stocks in Europe and the U.S. have taken a battering. The Nasdaq in the U.S. and the Stock 600 Tech Index in Europe both down more than 30%. So we've been through this before. Does this mean tech is just going to disappear and planet Earth will stop innovating? I think the answer is no. Uh, the only question is how deep are we going to fall? What's the crater? Where is it? What does it look like? I don't know. I don't think we're there yet. But when we get there, uh, we'll know. He's not here this year, but Elon Musk has been a web summiter before. Yeah, he's busy at the moment. He's just taken over a small company called Twitter. He's a bit busy. Yeah. What do you think about this? What's the outlook for Twitter? I've been asked this question a few times, and I think it's just the most wonderful drama playing out before our eyes. You know, people talk about, you know, what's the next greatest Netflix series? It deserves a stage. Right now, the Elon Musk show is the biggest show on Earth. You know, it has surpassed the Kardashians by an order of magnitude. It's sort of like this real-life Truman show. And he is Truman, and we're all just glued to what he does next. So if nothing else, forget about your opinions, good or bad, indifferent to Elon Musk. The Elon, the, the Elon Musk show is the greatest show on earth right now. And we should, we should, I'm enjoying it anyway. Well, this year has been somewhat costly, sometimes confusing, even controversial in the online space. Plenty for the world's biggest, smallest, and most innovative tech companies to mull over here at Web Summit. Anna Stewart, CNN, Lisbon, Portugal. And finally, if you're looking for a gift for someone who likes beer, how about this Christmas tree stand designed to fit around a keg of Miller Lite? Wow. The company is describing it as the ultimate way to enjoy a Pilsner. It's also selling Christmas ornaments or beernaments. Yes, I, I see what they did there. Um, one word, divorce. I think you better ask the uh, other half before you buy that gift. Wow. <laughs> the show. Yes. No. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend and connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.